Anything stick out to you guys? We may have just covered it <laughs> in our overview. But I want to make sure I give you an opportunity also. Well, speak up as we go through this, okay? There's a couple times where uh, I really want to, I want to hear what you guys have to say. I want to dig into this together because it is a very familiar passage. So we're going to kind of weed through it together. There's a few interesting fun facts that I found about David, which many of you are probably familiar with these facts already. He's credited with writing over half of the Psalms. That's a lot. So he... He expressed his, his joy and his love for the Lord through music. And it's still, you know, how many people love the Psalms? Everybody loves the Psalms. It's a place that I go often. It's a place that um, for generations, Christians have gone to the Psalms for comfort when we need it. It's just neat to think about David writing those very personally from his experiences. He is the only person in Scripture called a man after God's own heart. He has that title. Uh, Only Jesus is mentioned more than David in the Bible. So he is mentioned a lot in scripture. David was born in Bethlehem. I don't know if you picked up on that. We probably know a lot of that from the Christmas story. He is God's chosen king. Remember how Saul was the people's chosen king? Well, now David is God's chosen king, just as Christ is the chosen king. There's a lot of parallels. Uh, He too, David, had very humble beginnings. He's in a field. He's shepherding. He's not necessarily wanted by his family. We don't know that for sure, uh, but there's some different verses we can look at. We know that Christ had very humble beginnings. Neither David nor Jesus looked to be anything special. You know, it's interesting because the text does call David handsome, And I think it says he has beautiful eyes. And so it's not that he's described as being ugly by any means. But I think in that season, in that time, height had had something to do with it. You know, I mean, if you're not, if there's not tons of weapons available, the bigger you are, most likely the better. And so Saul, remember, was a head taller than everyone else. So that was good news for Israel to have a tall king. And, and now I think what we're getting is a small boy to start with. I mean, I don't, we don't know how old he is. There's a discrepancy. Maybe he was 12. Maybe he was already a teenager. He wasn't that old. So I'm not sure that David was always short. <laughs> I mean, the, the Bible sort of makes it sound like he's small. I don't know if he's always that way. I think it starts off with that he's young. I think he's definitely young to start off with. He could have been. We don't know how tall he was. The whole point, though, in describing Saul as tall, and then we get this idea that Eliab, the oldest brother, is also quite tall. Uh, The idea is that tall uh, is associated with pride. It's like, I'm upright. You know, I'm tall, prideful. And in this case, the the short (laughs) is associated with humble. So you kind of think about it that way. I'm not sure he was really that short, but maybe he was. So, uh, but nonetheless, the text does sort of lead us to believe that there just wasn't much special about David, right? Not much special about him. Who would choose him as the king? And that leads us to think about Christ, who had very humble beginnings. And is it Isaiah 51, 54? It talks about him 
uh, not being anything special. Like you wouldn't even notice that, it, that Jesus, not the greatest looking man, <laughs> you know, but he was amazing, amazing man. So, and David ends up being an amazing man, even though we know he was not perfect by any means. Uh, God anoints David and then with his spirit, and then there's a correlation that we, we don't know how long it was, but then David is sent out to go and defeat Israel's enemy after 40 days. So there's a correlation there. There's a parallel with Christ who, when he is baptized, he's anointed with the spirit, right? And then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to fight our giant, the devil. So you see that parallel happening in this story. Now from all appearances, I want you to keep the word appearances in mind. David, like we've talked about, he didn't look like a king. It just, it wasn't who anyone would have chosen. He could have continued to be small. Maybe not. We don't know. Um, Eliab, however, was quite tall. And that's what leads Samuel to think, this must be the guy. It must be him. And the Lord is so quick to point out to him, no, no, that is not what I look at. In verse 7, as we've already mentioned, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected Eliab. That's what the Lord is saying. I've rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, the Lord looks. Now in verse 1 of chapter 16, when God tells Samuel to get up, fill your horn with oil, I'm going to send you to Bethlehem. I have provided for myself a king. That word provided, I'm going to try and say it how they said it. Raha. Ooh, I did it. Raha. That's the, the Hebrew word for provided. And it, it means see or look. So there's this whole theme of seeing and looking. God is seeing, God is looking. So in essence, what he is telling Samuel is, I have seen someone. I have looked and I have seen, and this is my man, okay? So he tells him then to get his flask of oil. When God looked, we don't know, but let's speculate for a minute. He looked and he saw. What did he see in David? What do you think he saw? When he looked at David, any thoughts on that? Just share the first thing that comes to your mind. Humility. What was that? Servants. Humility. humility. Both of those, yes, I think are huge. Yeah, I think humility is huge, and the humility is what allows him to be a servant in any situation that he's put in. Willingness. Willingness. Yeah, he was willing to do whatever God's will was, right? I think you peeked at my notes, actually. Maybe, Jenna, not sure. <laughs> I want you to go to Acts 13, 22. Acts 13, 22 is when, I think this is Paul talking, but... He has this great verse on David here. I'm going to back up to verse 21 in Acts 13. 
He says, Then they asked for a king, they mean Israel, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. And here's the key phrase, who will do all my will. He was willing. Who will do all my will. I think that's huge. Um, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. Okay, I, want, I just want you to keep that in mind. David's heart was not necessarily something that was extra special. Like he wasn't born with an extra special heart that none of us have. He was, he was just like us with a sinful nature. And yet his heart was willing. He had a willing, humble servant's heart. And I think that's maybe what God saw when he looked at David. Now, the, the text gives us no indication of this conversation that takes place between Samuel and dad, Jesse. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation, right? So I've come, and I want to invite you to sacrifice, but also I'm here to consecrate your sons because one of your boys is the next king of Israel. How about that? <laughs> that would have been fun to hear. Maybe he just, he seems kind of like a blunt guy to me, so maybe he just came right out and said it. I don't know. It's also, I thought it was also funny that when he arrives, the elders of the town are trembling that Samuel's there. Why do you think they're trembling that Samuel's arrived? Yeah. Yes. So they had, if you think about it, just watched, well, we don't know how long ago, but him hack to pieces Ahab, the, right? I mean, the text says it, that he hacked him to pieces. What was, let's see. Yes. In Gilgal, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 33. So I think they're a little bit like, what's, what's, what's he doing here? <laughs> Did he bring his sword or... Anything with him? I don't even think he has a sword. He came, peace. he came in peace. That's right. No, I'm not here to fight you. I'm not here to fight you. I just thought it was kind of funny that they're, they're a little scared now of this guy who hacked King Agag to pieces. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I just thought that was fun. They go through all seven sons. They don't even think to invite David. You know, I find that a little bit telling and very interesting and the Lord's like, nope, 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 it's none of these. And Samuel looks at Jesse and he's like, do you have any more boys? <laughs> it's none of these. Well, there is the youngest. And that word youngest can also be translated smallest or runt. The runt of the litter, right? There, there is the smallest one, but he's tending the sheep. He's out tending the sheep. The implication is that David is more like a servant than a son. He's out tending the sheep. I don't know. Like, we can just leave him there. And Samuel's like, no, we are not sitting down until David shows up. I wonder how long that was. Like, were they standing for a while? Or was the pasture not that far away? I don't know. I thought that was kind of funny. So just to picture these boys all standing around waiting for their little brother to show up. He comes. He comes, and God says, Yes, that's the one. Anoint him. He's, he is the one. 
because God saw David. God saw David, okay? He looked and he saw his heart. And I just want to sit in that point for just a second because some of us need to just think about that. God sees you, right? We don't feel seen very much. I think more than anything that, well, the enemy loves to make us think we're alone. He loves to think, make us think you're the only one feeling this right now. You're the only one praying that prayer. You're the only one struggling this right now. We don't feel seen. But this passage is telling us that God is looking and God is seeing. And there's this humble boy out serving in a pasture all by himself. And God saw him. He saw every bit of him. And God sees you. He sees what you're struggling with. He sees how hard it is. He sees every piece that he's made. He's made you. He still sees you. He sees your hurts. He sees your sin. He sees your frailty. He doesn't ignore any of it. He sees your secrets, all of it. He sees your striving or maybe your lack thereof sometimes. He sees all of it. And yet he still says, come. Come to me. I'm waiting for you. I see you, and I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. I just, I just thought that was so special, just to think about God looking, and God, he sees you. He sees inside of you. He knows everything that's going on, yet we try and hide things or act like we need to explain. Isn't that just the best? When you go to pray, and then you're like, let me tell you what happened, Lord. He's like, I was there. I mean, I know you don't need to relay the details to me, Stacy. Let's just get to the point. He sees you, okay? He sees me. He knows what's going on inside of us. Now, we don't know the situation between David and his family, his brothers, his dad. There's a couple different verses in the Psalms that might give us some indication as to what was going on. Um, one of those is Psalm 51.5. You can just write it down or you can turn. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It could just be that he was born a sinner. It could just be that that's what he's getting after. But there are some theories, and they're not, we don't know that. They're not necessarily biblical because they're not in the Bible, but there are some theories that he was born into an interesting situation that we, his mother's not really talked about. So was he born from a servant woman? You know, that was a popular thing to do then. We don't necessarily know. Um, another one is Psalm 2710. And that one says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. 2710. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. There's a word to David. He felt forsaken by his family for some reason. We don't know what, but the cool thing is that God saw all of that, right? David was feeling all those things. He was struggling with all those things, and God saw every single bit of it. And he even let David put it in the Bible so that we could realize, you know, Oh, somebody else struggled with these things, and God sees me. 
struggling with this, these things going on in my life. Okay. The Lord looked and the Lord saw. I want to give you another verse that I love. Second, Chronic, Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. Just think about the eyes of the Lord running to and fro. It's like, almost like this. I'm not going to use the word frantic. That's the word I want to use, but there's nothing frantic about the Lord. But just the searching. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He wants to give support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. The heart. Okay, God sees you. He sees your heart. And praise the Lord that God has given us a new heart. Right? The Bible also talks about that. And he takes our heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. So we can have confidence before the Lord because our wretched heart, we couldn't do anything. God gives us a new heart. He fills us with the Holy Spirit, right? He changes us, okay? On the flip side of that, though, we still spend tons of time on the outside, don't we? We fret so much about our outward appearance when God is looking at the heart. He cares about what is going on inside of us. I was thinking about my growing up years and just how much time I spent on my bangs alone. Okay? <laughs> right? I don't know if anyone else is like this. We can look at pictures. I mean, I would get like the top one really curled nicely up, the bottom one perfectly down, or there would be some good teasing going on. And I'm telling you, if, my, if I was having a good bangs day, I had a good day. If my bangs were not happening, I, I no, my attitude stunk about as much as my hot hair. We'll just say that. It all just came down to my bangs, right? And now it's probably more my clothes. I do my hair. I do my hair for you ladies. And then I do my hair on Sundays. I probably do my hair twice a week. That's about it. Much to Craig's dismay. He's like, wow, there's the lady I'm wearing. But now it's probably more my clothes. I'm fret over the way my clothes feel or how I look in my clothes. You know, we stand in front of the mirror so much, so worried about what we look like. Always saying, man, I'm getting gray hair now or this or that or I look fat today or just all the things that we worry about. We just fret and fret and fret over our outward appearance. That's why I don't have bangs anymore. I got rid of those in college. Thank the Lord for that roommate. <laughs> Who also introduced me, I'll tell you this, to um, plucking my eyebrows. We can all thank her. <laughs> she, had, she had her work cut out for her when I showed up. <laughs> Okay, we're taking you shopping. We're going to do your hair. We're going to teach you how to pluck your eyebrows. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. No, I only have brothers. This is all before. All before. I don't even know if he would have noticed me. I know. Although he likes to tease me because I, my favorite pair of clothing, speaking of clothes, in college was probably overalls which now they're back in style. I had three pairs. I had a khaki pair. I had a brown corduroy pair of overalls, <laughs> girls. Full pants. Full pants. <laughs> and then my regular overalls, my shorts overalls. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I know. 
And so when he saw me in calculus class my sophomore year of college, I was wearing overalls. And he's a farmer, right? I think that's what did it. <laughs> Although he made, after we got married, I think it was such a, yeah, I held on to them for a long time. He made me get rid of all my overalls. So now that they're back in style, you know, he's like, are you going to get some? <laughs> no. <laughs> You'll just make fun of me. Okay. Wow. Appearances, right? We get so distraught over what we look like all the time. But what we really need to be fretting about is what's going on in our hearts. What, what's going on inside of us? You know, I thought about what if we compared the amount of time that we fret over our outward appearance in front of a mirror versus the time we fret over our hearts in front of scripture? There's probably no comparison. One side is very weighted, you know, and I am definitely guilty of that. I spend a whole lot more time in scripture than I used to. But I still fret over my appearance, and I think the Lord just looking at me going, can we just talk about your heart? Can we just talk a little bit more about what is going on inside of you right now? Okay, i got to turn the page. If there's one thing we need to fret over, it's absolutely our heart. God cares about the heart. In Scripture, the heart is the seat of loyalty. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about what the heart is. You know, we, we know those verses where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this loyalty aspect, Matthew 6, 21. Uh, there's also a great verse in Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Luke 6, 45, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That's an interesting one, right? A little eye-opening. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. It's a little scary what's come out of my mouth sometimes. What's in our hearts, then, is vitally important. It's vitally important what's going on in our hearts. I think that's one reason why God's so concerned about what's going on in our hearts. So let's just go ahead and ask the question, why was David considered a man after God's own heart? Okay, I think we've, I think we've already gone there a little bit. He... he was willing to do God's will, okay? We talk, talk, saw that in Acts 13, 22. But obviously, David didn't do God's will perfectly. We know that he was a sinner. Uh, but I think the key there is that David sought to follow after God with his heart, not just with his appearance. His intentions. His intentions. Exactly. His intentions. Yes. So some, I don't know, some of us can be hard on ourselves too, you know, and I think we need to go back to the fact again, like you can't give yourself some grace. God does see your heart. He does see your intentions. Okay. So I don't want to just be hard on us tonight either. I want us to realize like God sees the good that's in there. God sees your intentions. Okay, he also sees the bad that's in there, and that's why he continues to work on us. Psalm 19, 14, David says in that verse, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He cared about what was going on in his heart. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Now, in contrast, this is what God says to Israel in Jeremiah 13, 10. He says, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart. So there, 
They've gone the wrong way. Israel has gone the wrong way because they've stubbornly followed their own heart. Now, I don't think, like I said, I don't think it's that David had this really great natural inclination towards God on his own. David was like us. But the difference is that David was willing to let God rule in his heart. He was willing to let God be the one that would reign over his heart, even as king. I read through so many Psalms this week that where David was like, the Lord is king. God is king. He is the sovereign one. I mean, he, he let God reign, even though he had the crown on his head for many years. And he, he, he did have that humility. And I think that is also one big reason, like we talked about, why the Lord chose him. Okay. <clears throat> the society, oh, the heart is such an interesting topic in society today, right? I mean, if you get on social media, it usually doesn't take very long to um, find something that says, follow your heart, follow your heart. And like we Christians want to look at that and we're like, uh, I don't know about that. I don't know, I, what, but, but then what's wrong with that? So I, I thought about that this week and I thought, if God is not the one in charge of your heart, then don't follow your heart. But if God is the one in charge of your heart, follow your heart. I think there is, and I think we know when we're allowing the Lord to reign in our heart and when we're not. I'm going to give you two principles tonight, and this is your first one. The only trustworthy heart is the heart that's trusting God. The only trustworthy heart is the heart that's trusting God. The only trustworthy heart is the heart that's trusting God. Because I don't want to just tell you never follow your heart. Never follow your heart. No, if we're believers, if we have the Holy Spirit, if we're following the Lord, what's he tell us? He tells us that he takes us, right, and gives us the desires of our heart. He gives us new desires when we follow after him. So then it's okay to follow your heart. If your heart is trusting God, you can follow your heart. If your heart is not where it's supposed to be, don't follow your heart. You don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to follow your own instincts. You don't want to just follow your own, you know, decisions, your own will. Don't follow your heart then. The world tells us just the, that's the world side of things. I just, just go do what you want. Do what you want. Take it by storm. You know, this is your life. Do what you want. That's not a trustworthy heart. The only trustworthy heart is the heart that's trusting God. Then I think you can follow your heart. So that was eye-opening to me a few years ago, just to think about that. I would just get to these places of indecision. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and what's the right thing to do, and I don't know what to do. And then somebody said to me, have you been in the Word? Yeah. Have you been praying? Yeah. Have you been spent time? Have you, I mean, have you been really spending time with the Lord, Stacey? Yeah, I can say that I have. Okay. Then what's God, what's in your heart? You know, do you kind of see that? Like, if we're spending time with God, I think God puts the right things in our heart. And sometimes we just need to go with that. We need to have enough courage, like David does in the next chapter, to go, I can do this. 
This is what the Lord has sent me to do this. I would not be up here <laughs> if, it not, if it were not for what God has done in my heart or giving me the courage to do that in my heart. Now, I, this, this is my heart. This really, it, teaching women's Bible study, I can honestly tell you, is my heart. It wasn't always that way. If I had followed my heart a long time ago, I would have been a flight attendant, all right? I would not be here. <laughs> I'd be in a hotel somewhere. <laughs> Thankfully, I followed the Lord. And he, put, he has put these desires in my heart. And so now when I say, oh, I just, I really, last winter, I said, I just really, I, I think the Lord is telling me to teach a Thursday night Bible study, and I just cannot shake it. I don't know what to do about it. I was, the intention was for me to follow my heart at that point. It was the right thing. So we can check those heart things against scripture. That's one of the beautiful things of it. We can go, well, is, does this fit with scripture? Well, obviously teaching a Bible study would fit with scripture, you know, if it's really what the Lord wanted. And he, he did because he brought all of you ladies here, which is so much fun. Do you see what I'm saying? How the difference is there there is an element that as believers we can follow our heart because he gives us a new heart but we don't want to follow our heart if we're not trusting him if we're not spending time with him if we're not willing to let him reign in our lives if he is not our lord over our decisions and over what we're doing each day our hearts are not trustworthy on their own but when god gets a hold of them and changes them molds them and and shapes you and puts those desires in there, you can follow your heart. That's the beauty of it. Okay? All right. If that makes sense, we're moving on. We are moving on. I want to go back to, real quick, I just want to show you Hannah's song. Hannah's song, again, in chapter 2. Is Her song, over and over, is acting really like a table of contents for all of Samuel. And I never realized that before. And I think it's really cool. If you look at chapter 2, verse 9, or verse 7, verse 7. In her song, she says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. That's what we see going on here with Saul and David. Verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. Literally, I think with David out in the, out in the pastures, right? He raises them up. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Do you see how her song just continues to be kind of a table of contents for everything going on in Samuel? Right here in in chapter 16, when, the, when David is anointed with the Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit is taken away from uh, Saul, this is, a, this is what's going on in the song. There is a rising up and there was a bringing down, okay, right here. And I just quickly want to point out that the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was given to individuals to equip them for certain tasks. I think there's like a hundred people in the Old Testament that are said to have had the Holy Spirit. It's different today. Every single believer is gifted with the Holy Spirit, and God does not take His Spirit from us. Amen. I know. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful for that. He does not take His Spirit from you. It is His gift. It is His gift. And in Romans 8, there is a great verse if you want to look at it later. I don't even know where I am now. Romans 8, 14 through 16 
talks about adoption. And that's one of the ways I think that the Lord kind of uh, pictures for us that this is, this is a solid thing. He ad- we are adopted into his family, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But adoption is a final thing. You don't go back on adoption. Okay, God has adopted us. He has given us his spirit. He does not go back on that. All right? So I don't want us to look at, at David and Saul here and go, oh, well, the Lord can give his spirit and he can take it away. No, he, he doesn't do that to his children. All right? He gives us his spirit and it is his gift to us. Now, okay, where are we? An interesting verse that I, I also read, and we're almost done with chapter Chapter 16, we'll move on to David and Goliath. But as I was studying this week, I ended up in Psalm 23. And, uh, of course, that's the, the Lord is my shepherd psalm, right? So famous. And it was just interesting. And I think you'll find this interesting. Psalm 23.5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Huh. So what's happening in the story right now, in chapter 16? The anointing, he is anointed with oil, and you prepare a table before me, and then they're going to go eat at a sacrifice, right? They're getting ready to go feast at a sacrifice. So right here in Psalm 23, I just never put that together before. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I, he's, he can't believe this. If that verse has anything to do with what's going on in chapter 16, then it might be some enlightenment to... I mean, he, calls, he might be calling his brothers his enemies. In that. And I had never... I just... It was an aha moment for me to think about, think about that verse and David's initial anointing. Uh, in, in the presence of his enemies, you prepare a table for me. Maybe, just like Saul, he was the guest of honor at this sacrifice. Doesn't tell us that, but he could have been. Okay. We already talked about then the providence of God in the second half of chapter 16. It's just super ironic that Saul provides for himself the same man that God provided for himself. Like, ha, how funny is that? <laughs> you know, it, the crazy thing is, I don't know if you guys if you guys caught this or not, uh, but when Saul is struggling, and some guy in his court says, "I know a guy. I know a guy who can come and help you. He's this great warrior, this man of valor." I mean, what he says all these crazy things, and I'm looking at that verse, going, "Wait a minute! I thought David was just this little shepherd boy. How in the world is he already a man of valor?" and Where's the description? Uh, it's in 18. I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So evidently it was quite obvious that the Spirit was upon him in some way. Either that or maybe this kid was just close friends with David. But again, I thought about appearances, and I thought, hmm, that's how this guy sees David. That's how this guy, how David appears to this guy. But he obviously doesn't appear that way to his family. So you go to the next chapter, chapter 17, okay? 
And he doesn't appear that way to Eliab, does he? His oldest brother, when David shows up, no one thinks of this guy as a man of valor. No one thinks of him as a, a man of war. It's, isn't that interesting? Just kind of thinking about how he's described. They will think of him that way very soon. Okay. I don't even know where I am. I, this always happens to me, guys. It always happens. Second principle. Yeah, that, that's a good guess. That's a really good guess. We're not, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> okay. Yes, David's described as this great man of valor, this man of war. And yet, as we start chapter 17, what is David doing? Where is he? He's taking care of the sheep. He's still taking care of the sheep. That really struck me. He went back to normal life. He knows he's going to be the next king of Israel, and yet he just goes on. Didn't Saul do the same thing? Yes, he did. Yes. Yeah, he did. You're exactly right. Yes. And I thought about that a lot this week. I think so often in our lives, we deem things as unnecessary or maybe even mundane, you know, or that um, we do all kinds of stuff in our days or whatever. And we're just like, this is pointless. This is pointless. This is pointless. David's time in the pasture was not pointless. None, none of that time was pointless, okay? What we often see as mundane, God just might see as necessary. Okay, that, I want us to make sure we hold on to that little tidbit as we look at verse 37. Jump to chapter 17, verse 37. David shows up. The Israelites are fighting the Philistines. They've been a standstill for 40 days. What does he say in verse 37 to Saul? He tells him, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? But how many times do I, I want... I mean, I thought... When he is out there in the pasture right, all by himself, maybe feeling sorry for himself because his family doesn't want to be around him. Who knows what's going on? And these lions keep coming, and these bears keep coming, and he's like, Lord, is this ever going to end? Like, why do you keep bringing these lions and these bears? Why can't you just leave me alone? God was training him. God was training him for this moment right here. He was also training him to be king. You see, there's appearances. It goes back to appearances. What may have looked to David like, what does my life even matter? I'm just out here shepherding a bunch of sheep. My family doesn't even really care about me. Appearances. What might have appeared to David as mundane or, or unfair was his training ground for the very life that God had prepared for him. You see, we can't see those things. We can only see on the outside, right? But God sees the inner workings. He constantly sees the inner plan. He doesn't see our heart. He's sovereignly guiding all those, all those things. So I don't know if David ever prayed, Lord, why do these bears keep coming? Why do these lions keep coming? <laughs> I would have. I would have complained about it. And yet when he gets 
in front of Saul and he sees Goliath, he's like, they're just going to be like another bear. He's just going to be like a lion. I can take him on. That time in the wilderness, that time in the pasture, that time with the sheep is where David built his confidence in the Lord. It was not mundane. It was necessary. God does not waste time in our lives. We waste time. We waste time. God does not waste time. So there might be some things, this is where I'm trying to go, I hope it's making sense, but there might be some things where you're just like, ugh, I wish we could just move on from this. Maybe it's training ground. Maybe it's training ground for what God has prepared for you over there. But you're not there yet. And our goal then is to serve like David served. Willingly. He willingly went back to his sheep. He willingly went and played his music for some crazy king. You know, and then he willingly went to the battlefield and was willing to put himself out there on the front lines. But only after he developed this confidence in the Lord. Where did he develop that? In those, those moments that nobody else saw, right? In those moments when he was alone. In the time when he, it was just him and the Lord. That's where he developed that confidence. That's where his heart was molded. When does the battle often rage the most? When we're alone. That's what it does for me. When, when we're by ourselves, when we're thinking about things, that's often when the battle will rage. And where, so where do some of the hardest fought battles take place then? Right here. In our minds. That's where some of the hardest fought battles take place. And those things matter. Those moments matter. Okay? Those moments mattered for David. He had a choice to make the first time he ever faced a lion. Am I going to trust the Lord? And am I going to go and face this lion? He did. But those were moments nobody else saw but him, probably. You know? Those moments matter. We have all kinds of, of, of private decisions, personal decisions that take place in our minds, that take place when nobody else is watching. And I think sometimes we think, these things don't matter. This is mundane. Can I just move on? No, I do matter. Am I going to give credence to these lies bouncing around in my head right now, or am I going to capture some truth? That's what shapes your heart, those little personal decisions. Am I going to let worry and fear overwhelm me, or am I going to trust God? All that takes place like where nobody else can see. Our training ground, a lot of times with the Lord, is very personal. It's, it's, it's those little moments that we where we can choose the Lord or not choose the Lord. Am I going to slander? Am I going to fume? Am I going to fuss? Am I going to be mad at my husband? Or am I going to figure out a way to love him in this moment right now? Those moments matter. Okay, so here's your principle. We made it. <laughs> the heart is a product of the mind. Does that make sense? The heart is a product of the mind. What we might see as small and meaningless, pointless, things that might, there's going to be so many things that are going to appear to us. Like this, why am I doing this? Why, why, what is going on? God does not waste time. We waste time, and those moments matter. And so we need to turn to the Lord. <laughs> Let our heart 
be willing to follow the Lord and go, okay, well, maybe you're training me. Maybe you're molding my heart right now for something else, okay? Because when David showed up, he was ready. He was ready. He did not hesitate at all to go and face Goliath, right? He had some fierce faith at that point. But that just didn't happen. I think that was a lot of time spent out in the fields fighting these other personal battles, thinking about his family, thinking about maybe he was missing out. Maybe they never invited him to meals. I don't know. (laughs) All those times when he had made the decision to worship God instead or trust the Lord instead, God was molding that heart in David. He didn't just naturally have that. And then one day, man, God saw, God looked, God called, and David was ready. Now, as we wrap this up, I want to think a little bit more about appearances. Think about the story of David and Goliath, okay? There's so many, so many things that just appeared that really weren't the way they were. Goliath appears fierce and unbeatable, right? He appears to be this unbeatable guy. He's like nine feet tall, and he has some really impressive armor. Like his coat that he wears is like 125 pounds alone, okay? It's state-of-the-art armor that he's wearing. This guy appears to be unbeatable. But we know he was beatable, right? Okay, Israel appears to be in quite the pickle, don't they? They've been at this for 40 days. No one seems to want to fight this guy. It appears to be a helpless situation. It was not helpless, was it? But it appeared that way. Saul appears to be the obvious choice to go against Goliath. He is in the text in verses 30 and verse 38. Saul is actually described as having very similar armor to Goliath. It says he has a helmet of bronze and a coat of mail. That's in, that was interesting to me, just like Goliath. He's probably the only other one with that. So it appears that Saul would be the most likely candidate to go up against this guy. Remember, he's also a head taller than everyone else. So he's probably somewhat tall, even though Goliath is probably eight or nine feet tall. But we know he wasn't fit for that. He wasn't, but it appeared that he should have been. David appears to his brother Eliab to have evil in his heart. But we know this little boy, he's not really a little boy, but this boy, teenager, has a heart for God. He doesn't have evil in his heart, but it appeared to Eliab that he did. David appears to be too young to Saul. But he wasn't, was he? We know that. By appearances, there was no way David would go out and win without any armor on. It shouldn't have happened. There's no way. This, this boy with a slingshot, how's he going to win against a huge giant that's got all this bronze all over him? By appearances, he shouldn't have won. David then appears to be absolutely nothing to Goliath. He's like, what, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He appears to be absolutely no threat to Goliath. Do you see how appearances play through this entire thing? Girls, we can't always see the inside track, but God sees it, which is why we just have to keep trusting him because things are not always as they seem. Life is going to appear one way to us, and God knows the inside scoop. We don't. We can't see that. The, the, 
you know, you look at all these appearances and you put yourself there. It's just kind of interesting to think through all that, right? I mean, this looked, it appeared that this was an impossible situation, but things aren't always what they seem. I want to read to you verse 45 through 47. Yes, let's see. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Wow. And then David's going to take five smooth stones and kill Goliath on the first try. It appeared that he couldn't do it. But with the Lord, things aren't always as they appear. That's what we have to remember. With God, things are not always as they appear. David went out and defeated the Philistines' great champion. Twice, Goliath is called a champion in verse 4 and verse 23. Now, there is a temptation. I'm going to come back to that point in just a second. When reading this story, to put ourselves in the place of David. I think sometimes it, it can get taught that way. You know, like, just be strong and go out and fight your battles. You know, you, you can do it in the Lord. But we are not David in this story. We are not to emulate David in this story. We are not to rush at the enemy with our armor off. We're to have our armor on at all times. We are the Israelites in this story. Standing on the sidelines with our knees knocking because we cannot defeat the enemy without the Lord. We know the end of the story, right? But we're the Israelites standing around with our knees knocking. So what does God do for terrified people up against a giant that they can't defeat? He sends a Messiah. That was David. David represents Christ. We are not David. We are not the Messiah. Okay, we are the ones who now follow after our king, after the Messiah. Now, what's really cool is that word champion in verses 4 and 23 literally means the man of the between. That's what the word champion means, the man of the between. David becomes the man of the between in this story. He becomes Israel's champion. He's the man of the between. Christ is our champion. He is the man of the between. He went between us and God, didn't he? And he made it possible for us to get to God. Christ is our mediator, our savior, our Messiah, our man of the between. I love the way Tim Keller puts this story. He says, the message of 1 Samuel 17 is not that we are called to be like David. It's that we have a David. That's the message of 17. We have a David. We have a man of the in-between. We have a champion who's already gone before us and defeated the biggest giant we will ever face. Sin, death, 
separation from God, an unbeatable giant that we would not be able to beat on our own. But Christ went as our man of the in-between. And what's really cool is if you go to chapter, uh, or Hebrews chapter 11, and it's the hall of fame of faith, right? You go through all of those different people. And, and the, the writer of Hebrews tells us, consider the faith of Abraham. Consider the faith of Jacob and Moses and Samuel. He goes through all of them. He even mentions David. Consider David. But then go and fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider them, but then go and look. Go and fix your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That word founder can also be translated champion. Isn't that cool? Look to your champion. He's your champion. He's your man in the middle. That's who your heart goes after. It may not appear to us right now that we have a champion. You may not feel like you have a champion. You may feel a little lost. You may feel a little forgotten, right? Appearances. We got to get off the appearances. We can't see. We can't see, but we can trust the Lord. It may not appear that Christianity is winning right now. Um, some days I'm not sure that it is. <laughs> When I turn on the news, we have a huge election next week. I don't know what's going to happen. It may appear that we've totally lost it. I don't know. I don't know. There's going to be things that are going to appear like the whole world has gone crazy. We can't focus on those appearances. We need to focus on our champion. That's the great news of chapter 17, is we have a man that's already defeated the biggest enemy there is. And we can focus on him. The only giant we have is the one that's already been defeated. Sin, death, and separation from God. The obstacle is no longer Goliath. The obstacle then is our own unbelief. That's what keeps us distracted. Our own unbelief. We're following our own heart, our own sin. Not willing to bring our heart under the rule of our own champion. We have a champion, right? So whatever life may appear to be to you right now, whatever appears to happen next week, whatever part of your appearance you might be currently struggling with, our hope is not in appearances. That's what I want you to take away tonight. Our hope is not in appearances. Appearances are very misleading. Mislead us all the time. Our hope is not in appearances. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the champion. So I'll end with reading 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. I thought it fit perfectly with this. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look, not to the things that are seen, appearances, right? As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Don't look at the appearance. Look at your champion. I'll pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being our man of the in-between. Thank you for being our champion, Lord. You're our champion. 
you've already won. We don't have a Goliath anymore, Lord. And I just, I pray that our hearts will be bent on trusting you no matter what. No matter what happens when we walk out of here tonight, no matter what happens next week, no matter what happens in the months to come, Lord, may we remember that you are our champion and we follow after you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Did that make sense? Okay, yes. <laughs> I know, because you know I know. <laughs>